open when I open the door. I see Santa. Now who the hell is this in this blue bandana? Messing with the boxes that's up under the tree. Look like Santa Claus and crossed into a woman to me. Now I'm coming to see the whole picture get clearer. How we have less as X mess get nearer. Mirror, mirror, please. It seems I've been deceived. And thank it's ain't trick for the gifts I receive. So I creep back and act like I ain't even peeped it. This'll be me and mom's privacy. Santa Claus.
Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Fill every stocking you find The kids are gonna love you so uh, Leave a toy for Johnny Leave a doll for Mary Leave something pretty for Johnny And don't forget about Gary Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Tell him James Brown sent you Go straight to the ghetto You know that I know What you will see Cause that was once Me
When people come to see them, they really are the freedom, the Adam family.
center. Her cafeteria was a clubhouse for the local senior citizens who might spend an entire afternoon huddled over a single serving of rice pudding. The K&W was past its prime, whereas my cafeteria was located in the sparkling new Crabtree Valley, a former swamp that made her mall look like a dusty tribal marketplace. The Piccadilly had red velvet walls and a dining room lit by artificial torches. A suit of armor marked the entrance to this culinary castle where, we were told, the customer was always king. As a dishwasher, I spent my shifts yanking trays off a conveyor belt and feeding their contents into an enormous, foul-mouthed machine that roared and spat until its charges, free of congealed fat and gravy, came steaming out the other end, fogging my glasses and filling the air with the harsh smell of chlorine. I didn't care for the heat or the noise, but other than that, I enjoyed my job. The work kept my hands busy, but left my mind free to concentrate on more important matters. Sometimes I would study from the list of irregular Spanish verbs I kept posted over the sink, but most often I found myself fantasizing about a career in television. It was my dream to create and star in a program called Socrates and Company in which I would travel from place to place accompanied by a brilliant and loyal proboscis monkey. Socrates and I wouldn't go looking for trouble, but week after week it would manage to find us. The eyes, Socrates, go for the eyes, I'd yell during one of our many fight scenes. Maybe in Santa Fe I'd be hit over the head by a heavy jug and lose my memory. Somewhere in Utah, Socrates might discover a satchel of valuable coins or befriend someone wearing a turban. But at the end of every show, we would realize that true happiness often lies where you very least expect it. It might arrive in the form of a gentle breeze or a handful of peanuts, but when it came, we would seize it with our own brand of folksy wisdom. It suddenly occurred to me that we were all held captive in that prison known as the human mind. I would muse, or... It suddenly occurred to me that freedom was perhaps the greatest gift of all. I'd hoped to crack these people like nuts, sifting through their brains and coming away with the lessons garnered by a lifetime of regret. Unfortunately, Having spent the better part of their lives behind bars, the men and women I worked with seemed to have learned nothing except how to get out of doing their jobs. Kettles boiled over and steaks were routinely left to blacken on the grill as my co-workers crept off to the stockroom to smoke and play cards or sometimes have sex. 
It suddenly occurred to me that people are lazy, my reflective TV voice would say. This was hardly a major news flash, and as a closing statement, it would undoubtedly fail to warm the hearts of my television audience, who by their very definition were probably not too active themselves. No, my message needed to be more upbeat and spiritually rewarding. Joy, I think whacking the dirty plates against the edge of the slop can. What brings people joy? As Christmas approached, I found my valuable fantasy time cut in half. The mall was crazy now with hungry shoppers, and every three minutes I had the assistant manager on my back, hollering for more coffee cups and vegetable bowls. The holiday customers formed a loud and steady line that reached past the coat of arms all the way to the suit of armor at the front door. They wore cheerful Santas pinned to their bobbled shirts and carried oversized bags laden with power tools and assorted cheeses bought as gifts for friends and relatives. It made me sad and desperate to see so many people strangers whose sheer numbers eroded the sense of importance I was working so hard to invent. Where did they come from and why couldn't they just go home? I might swipe their trays off the belt without once wondering who these people were and why they hadn't bothered to finish their breaded cutlets. They meant nothing to me and watching them move down the line towards the cashier, it became apparent that the feeling was mutual. They wouldn't even remember the meal, much less the person who had provided them with their piping hot tray. How was it that I was important and they were not? There had to be something that separated us. I had always looked forward to Christmas, but now my enthusiasm struck me as cheap and common. Leaving the cafeteria after work, I would see even more people swarming out of the shops and restaurants like bees from a burning hive. Here were the young couples in their stocking caps and the families clustered beside the fountain, each with its lists and marked envelopes of money. It was no wonder the Chinese people couldn't tell them apart. They were sheep, stupid animals programmed by nature to mate and graze and bleed out their wishes the obese, retired school principal who sat on his ass in the mall's sorry-looking North Pole. My animosity was getting the best of me until I saw in their behavior a solution to my troubling identity crisis. Let them have their rolls of gift wrap and gaudy, personalized stockings. If it meant something to them, I wanted nothing to do with it. This year, I would be the one without the shopping bags the one wearing black in protest of their thoughtless commercialism. My very avoidance would set me apart and cause these people to question themselves in ways that would surely pain them. Who are we, they'd ask, plucking the ornaments off their trees. What have we become, and why can't we be more like that somber fellow who...
Black Plastic Mutiny Radio FM. Happy holidays. Send us some money. Click on the website. We deserve it.
him on my radio call-in shows. Had my father been driving, we would have locked all the doors and ignored the stop signs, speeding through the area as quickly as possible because that's what smart people did. Pulled over and parked behind a van, whose owner stood examining his flat tire with a flashlight. Things might get a little rough up there, so just do what I tell you and hopefully no one will get hurt. She flipped her hair over her shoulder and stepped out of the car, kicking aside the cans and bottles that lined the curb. My sister meant business, whatever it was, and in that instant she appeared beautiful and exotic and dangerously stupid. Local teens slain for sport, the headlines would read. Holiday hijinks end in homicide. Maybe someone should wait with the car, I whispered, but she was beyond reason charging up the street in her sensible shoes with a rugged, determined gait. There was no fumbling for a street address or doorbell. Lisa seemed to know exactly where she was going. I followed her into a dark vestibule and up a flight of stairs, where without even bothering to knock, she threw open an unlocked door and stormed into a filthy, overheated room that smelled of stale smoke, sour milk, and seriously dirty laundry. Three odors that, once combined, can peel the paint off of walls. This was a place where bad things happened to people who clearly deserved nothing but the worst. The stained carpet was littered with cigarette butts, and clotted, dust-covered flypaper hung from the ceiling like beaded curtains. In the far corner of the room, a man stood beside an overturned coffee table, illuminated by a shadeless lamp that broadcast his shadow, huge and menacing, against the grimy wall. He was dressed casually in briefs and a soiled T-shirt, and had thin, hairless legs, the color and pebbled texture of a store-bought chicken. We had obviously interrupted some rite of unhappiness, something that involved shouting obscenities while pounding upon a locked door with a white-tasseled loafer. The activity consumed him so completely that it took the man a few moments to register our presence. Squinting in our direction, he dropped the shoe and steadied himself against the mantel.
get you another. Hearing a fresh, slurred voice in the house, my brother and sisters rushed from their rooms and gathered to examine Lisa's friend, who clearly cherished the attention. Angels! You're a pack of goddamn angels! She was surrounded by admirers, and her eyes brightened with each question or comment. Which do you like better, my sister Amy asked. Spending the night with strange guys or working in a cafeteria? What were the prison guards really like? Do you ever carry a weapon? How much do you charge if somebody just wants a spanking? One at a time, one at a time, my mother said. Give her a second to answer.
Something's fucked up with this turntable. Colonel Steve Austin suddenly remembers he has not bought any gifts for his friends and relatives. He decides to go to Jeffrey's, the large department store downtown. Can I help you, sir? Yes, I'm looking for something in the Any particular fragrance? Uh, I thought you might be able to suggest something. Well, there certainly is a large variety to choose from. I can see that. That's where the store Santa Claus holds court. Probably some kid didn't get what he wanted and is registering a complaint. Hey, stop that man! He stole my Christmas present! Hey, you! Stop! Watch it, mister. 
Sorry, pal, I'm in a hurry. I understand. Christmas rush. Yeah, well, I gotta run. Hey, mister, give me my Christmas present. Go away. Give it to me. Come on, kid, go away. What seems to be the problem? He stole my Christmas present. He wanted Santa Claus to me. Look, pal, she's my daughter. I wanted to surprise her. Now she's gonna rule the whole thing. He's not my father. Give me my present. I think you better give it to her. Get out of my way. Put that gun away. Someone could get hurt. Not if you leave me alone. Now stand aside. I'm walking out of here. Oh, you're not. Office of Scientific Intelligence, Colonel Steve Austin is in the security conference with his boss, Oscar Goldman. Good thing you called me in on this, Steve. When I grabbed that guy, he dropped the package and it broke open. I could see the thing inside was no ordinary Christmas present. That's why I picked it up and got it to you. Steve, you seem to have a talent for finding trouble. But in this case, you may have stumbled on a major espionage ring. An espionage ring? Steve, the man you fought with in the department store is Harrison Fredericks. For a long while, he's been known to be a free agent in the espionage market, selling his services to the highest bidder. But what is even more interesting to us is what he was carrying in that package. What was it? It was an electronic fuel cell for our latest attack missile, the SYR-9. The SYR-9? I thought that was out in California. Landing on the Arctic terrain, Steve and Oscar were accosted by the enemy agent Remont at gunpoint, captured and locked up in an old warehouse. Is the wound serious, Oscar? I don't think so, Steve. Looks like a scratch. Where are we? It's a warehouse. Where are we?
Expect to resume normal broadcasting shortly. Glad you could make it. No problem, Oscar. I'm staying in town for the holidays. Steve, the Air Defense Command in Colorado Springs picked up an unusual radio message the other day on a restricted frequency. No identification codes? That's part of the problem. All messages received over the defense network are preceded by an identification code, and they are followed by a second ident code before signing off. And this communication has no code on either side. They can't even decode the message. What are we going to do? It defies analysis, Steve. As a matter of fact, nothing on record as language or numeric code is anything like it. I've called in Dr. Landis. Ethel Landis? She's the top expert in the field of coded communication. And she has a lot of kooky ideas, Oscar. I know, Steve, but we can't afford to overlook any possibilities.
abandonment affections, and they've made a very nice living for me, and it seems to have worked. Did you ever feel that this time the horror stories jinxed you, that something that you feared and had written about was coming true? No, it never even crossed my mind. Um, it's strange because off and on uh, in my career as a writer, I have certainly written. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Stephen King was nearly killed in June of 1999 while taking his daily walk. He was walking along the gravel shoulder of Route 5, a two-lane highway near his home in Maine, when he was struck by a van driven by Brian Smith, who had several prior convictions for speeding and reckless driving. Over a year later, Smith was found dead in his home. King is still recovering from his injuries, which included nine breaks in his right leg, his right knee split almost directly down the middle, a fracture of his right hip, four broken ribs, and a scalp laceration that required nearly 30 stitches. His spine was chipped in eight places. Yet, fairly early in his recovery, he returned to writing. I spoke with Stephen King in 2000, after the publication of his book, On Writing, which is part memoir, part reflection on his craft. The last chapter is about the accident. We started with a reading. Most of the sight lines along the mile of Route 5, which I walk, are good. But there is one stretch, a short, steep hill, where a pedestrian walking north can see very little of what might be coming his way. I was three-quarters of the way up this hill when Brian Smith, the owner and operator of the Dodge van, came over the crest. He wasn't on the road. He was on the shoulder. My shoulder. I had perhaps three-quarters of a second to register this. It was just time enough to think, my God, I'm going to be hit by a school bus. I started to turn to my left. There is a break in my memory here. On the other side of it, I'm on the ground, looking at the back of the van, which is now pulled off the road and tilted to one side. This recollection is very clear and very sharp, more like a snapshot than a memory. There is dust around the van's taillights. The license plate and the back windows are dirty. I registered these things with no thought that I had been in an accident or of anything else. It's a snapshot, that's all. I'm not thinking. My head has been swapped clean. There's another little break here.
actors Actor filming. Filming. Yeah. Not we acting did... filmers. Actors filming. I was going to say, this is the second time our show has done it. This is the first time with Carl, and the uh, first time since there's more information available about this film. So we're really excited to watch it again. It was on YouTube. Uh, you know, I, you start off a show called Let's Watch a Full Length Movie on YouTube. You go straight to the heavy hitters. You go to the 1994 Fantastic Four. <laughs> I don't know. You look for the Chuck Berry video. You look for everything you could possibly look for. And uh, it was on YouTube, and then it got yonked, and now it's back on. It's been on for a while. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so it's great. We're going to revisit this episode. And I should say, with every bad movie, the joy is experiencing it and talking about it. So if other people have talked about this movie, it's just, what can we say? It's a great bad movie. It's on YouTube. That's the premise of our show. We like, you know, I read about this <laughs> infamously, and uh, now I got to see it. So we're going to go ahead and see it. So go to Fantastic Four 1994, find the version from hosted by actors filming, hit pause, move the meter to zero, zero, zero. And at the count of three, when you hear go, press go. Now, you're going to hear go from our special comedian, celebrity, comedian, countdown person who may not even be a comedian and may not even be hosted by Carl. Take it away, Carl. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Celebrity Countdown, this time with Chris Gore. Sure. Chris Gore. Welcome, Chris. You guys are very enthusiastic. I, I haven't had my morning coffee. So... <laughs> I just brought well, a second pot. Today we're watching Fantastic Four, 1994, the Roger Corman mega blockbuster, right? And the reason we've got you on is in the service of Film Threat uh, magazine, you were on set for the entire filming, right? All 21, 25 days, was it? Uh, for most of the shooting, yes. It was around the holidays at the end of the year, but I was there, yeah. Now, that's unusual, really. Is that because it was going to be a cover story you spent so much time? Uh, well, it ended up being a cover story. So I was on the set for filming. And, and yeah, um, the reason that they needed to start shooting before the, before the end of the year was because contractually, if they hadn't started shooting a movie before the end of the year, they would, you know, they would have lost the rights to the Fantastic Four, this German company. Yeah, so they were, it was so quick to. This, yeah, this German company hired Roger Corman to just make a Fantastic Four movie that they had no intention of ever releasing. Unbeknownst to everyone working on the movie, yeah, uh, they thought they were making the Fantastic Four movie and they were super excited. I was excited because the Fantastic Four is, I mean, it's my <laughs> gateway comic book. It's between that and Batman, it's the, you know, two comic you know, uh, franchises that I love the most. So when I heard they were going to film, I, I said, I want to be there because I had just done a story on a movie called Carnosaur, which was Roger Corman's ripoff of Jurassic Park. So, um, so that would just sort of led me to being on the set the in, almost the entire time, the entire shoot. Which and I don't, we I, did um, Carnosaur on this podcast also, and we it was horrible, horrible film, terrible. Yeah, it's, I'm in it. I'm in it. It's horrible. Are you really? Yeah. Are you? Where, I'm where in are it. you? I am in the scene where these two characters are loading cages of, right. I think, chickens uh, onto a truck. Yes, we're and just I, beginning. And I, my line is, I changed it. I said, can you give me a hand with 
the line was, can you give me a hand with this? And I said, can you give me a hand with this load? Just because I wanted <laughs> right. to say the word load. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it I did worked. it for every take and it's in the movie. <laughs> okay, I'm so, gonna have to watch it again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so the the uh, filming of uh, uh, Fantastic Four took place in some of the same settings that uh, Carnosaur took place. And I understand that this building was condemned with rats in it and a cat that would chase the rats. Do you have any story about the condemned building, your experience there? I don't, I never saw any rats, but it was pretty ugly. And I did notice because I was on the set for Carnosaur, we did a story about that. Then I was, you know, it's like, oh, they're just recycling the same sets for the Fantastic Four, <laughs> which was weird. It's like, and they barely repainted it. It's like, I will throw some stuff up there on the wall and this and whatever. You know, he didn't seem to care. What I do remember is, is that, um, if I recall correctly, like Roger Corman's famously cheap. I mean, uh -huh. he's famously cheap, and I, I, I interviewed him once, and I got him to pose with a penny. So <laughs> he's holding a penny up to his eye, and we had a photographer take a picture of him holding a penny just to kind of show how cheap he was. And I do recall that when I was working, I was hanging out on the set and whatnot, that someone was let go for buying name brand soda like you can't buy like coke or pepsi you had to buy like whatever the low brand like local grocery store brand of coca-cola was like whatever you know generic brand snaps like don't get fancy snaps you know so i i thought that was really funny that's like that's, that's how how much he was pinching pennies now, we saw the uh, documentary Dune to prepare our research for the film. And in it, you talk uh -huh. about how, like, at first you were very giddy to be on the film. I mean, you were a fan, you know. But as time yeah. moved on, you started to realize this was going to be a B-movie. Yeah, I mean, I, it was sort of this sad realization, especially when I saw the costumes, right? It's like, here they're in their Fantastic Four costume. And it's literally felt fours glued onto these spandex is literally just spandex where you know they're shooting with certain angles to not show how haphazardly those costumes were assembled the other thing was <clears throat> we did a, a cover photo shoot for film threat <clears throat> with all of the four characters right the main four and <clears throat> what i loved was their enthusiasm actors alex hyde white who actually ended up being in the third indiana jones movie who's an established actor who now does voice acting. Alex does voice acting for, uh, he does he does a lot of voiceover for audiobooks. Great guy, great guy. And Alex Hyde White, he was just so earnest about this part. He cared uh -huh. so much about it. And looking back on the movie, it's probably the most accurate incarnation, at least to Stanley and Jack Kirby, what they had intended to do with the Fantastic Four, just in tone felt like, oh, this is like the first hundred issues that Jack Kirby and Stan Lee did of the Fantastic Four, right? Yeah, so, agree. So, so that was great aspect. And the, the earnestness of everyone involved, with the exception of, I think, Roger Corman, it was just concerned <laughs> with like, let's just get this done and do it cheap. The thing that was really sad was we did a photo shoot. So we had like all four characters, right? And we put them against the set and I hired this photographer shooting and um this is a story that 